Okay, Matthew 27, we'll finish up today. Uh, the darkness before the dawn, so to speak. We are um, talking about the account of Jesus' crucifixion and some of the, a few of the events immediately following that. Um, and then next week, Ty, I presume you'll be uh, jumping into 28 and the, the dawn after the darkness, the, the resurrection. And um, I'm not going to get into tw- chapter, the chapter 28 at all, but I think, um, you know, so, so many times I want to kind of, you know, take the scripture as it unfolds to us. But we all know the end of the story here, and it, it is a joyful end of the story. Jesus Christ is killed, murdered, and yet his murder is also him giving his own life. No one takes it from him. Um, and it ends in his overpowering death. So as we read, we've seen at the beginning of the chapter, um, the end of 26, you see Peter's betrayal and Judas's betrayal, and, and they lead completely different places because of the hearts of the people involved, and we won't um, belabor that again, but um, the difference between failure and yet hope and confidence and redemption and failure that is despairing is all the difference in the world. And then we look at Pilate um, with that uh, conflict of interest, so to speak, between this clearly innocent man and his job, which is to keep peace amongst the Jews, keep, keep the lid on the unrest in Jerusalem, and he's faced between the faced with the prospect of doing the right thing and releasing an innocent man or you know, doing the thing that you know, does his job. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that you can, to a certain extent, read Pilate as a sympathetic character. He's caught on the horns of a dilemma. But at the end of the day, Pilate does what, what Pilate thinks is best for Pilate, not what truth and, and justice demands. And, uh, you know, we talk about Pilate's wife, you know, have nothing to do with this man, kind of a mysterious thing. Um, Pilate tries to wash his hands of the blood of Jesus. He cannot. The people are crying out, his blood be upon us and our children. Um, go ahead and kill him. Uh, and we talk about the irony of that statement. Um, Uh, Pick up the reading at verse 28. I'm not going to read every bit to the end of the chapter. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. The soldiers, this is all mocking. They crown him with a crown of thorns. We're going through the cast of characters here. The Jews are trying to kill him, but they can't. They don't have the authority to do it themselves under the Roman dominion. The soldiers are mocking him. The thieves are reviling him. We know that one of those thieves repented. We have one and one, you know, One thief embraces Christ even as he is dying on the cross. And that that cliche, which is good to remember, one that none may despair and only one that none may presume. Um, That's as far as we know what the record gives uh, gives us. Um, Oh, back up a little bit. A man of Cyrene, Simon by name, is compelled to carry his cross. It's interesting that um, 
I mentioned that Cyrene is, is uh, the area that's now Libya. Um, he's, he's mentioned in the book of Mark, I believe. I don't have it right in front of me. As the father of Alexander and Rufus. Kind of interesting. You have this guy grabbed off the street, carry, his, carry this criminal's cross. We don't know what happened to Simon of Cyrene. There's some traditions surrounding him. But this great, why would we care whose father he is? Well, uh, Alexander comes up again. Rufus comes up again. Don't know for sure that it's the same one. Uh, but Rufus is mentioned in a greeting by Paul in Romans 16. Alexander there isn't, there's several Alexanders actually, which probably couldn't possibly be the same person, but one prominent man is called forth during the riot at Ephesus, and he's a Jew, and he starts to make a defense, and the crowd shout him down. You know, is there reason to draw any firm conclusions? No. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit wants us to mark Simon as the father of of Rufus and Alexander, maybe we are to think of the hope that even in this providential passing uh, thing that happened to him, carrying the cross of Jesus, he was brought to be a follower and his children after him. Don't know. I don't, I don't think it's conclusive, but there are, are traditions. Um, if, if, you, if you, depending on your degree of trust in some of the traditions of the early church, which suggests that. So then they're dividing his garments, fulfilling um, what was said in Psalm 22. He is um, crucified with a, an inscription over his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And we know elsewhere that the Jews object to that. Um, eh, don't say he's the King of the Jews. Say he's said he was the King of the Jews. Not the same thing. Pilate says, I've written what I've written. Um, I'm going to come back to something. We're going to kind of finish the chapter chronologically, and I want to come back to one particular thing to sort of sum up, um, give some summary thoughts on the chapter. Uh, we read of, of Jesus crying out on the cross. Um, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some who stood there when they heard that, he thought he was calling for Elijah. He wasn't. He's speaking Hebrew. You know, the history of Jerusalem is there's a bunch of mixed languages. Um, a lot, some Jews still spoke Hebrew, but they were in the minority. Most spoke Greek or Aramaic, which is a, you know, really a, a, a form of Greek. Um, some of the more educated ones might have spoken Latin, but Hebrew is misunderstood largely. They think he's calling for Elijah. Jesus yields up his spirit in verse 50. Cries out again, yielded up his spirit. Um, when it, in verse 50, we just have Matthew recording, Jesus cried out again from the other Gospels. Probably this is the cry of what? It, it is finished. It is finished. Um, well, it could, yeah, it could be into thy hand. I commit, commit my spirit. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, this is the final cry. He gives, he gives up his life. I'm thinking this is, it is finished. I don't know that it's 
that vital that we, that we know. And then I contended last week, and I think uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts on this. There's this description of what happens. And my understanding, and I'll tell you the reasons for it, is this is sort of a summary description of what happens in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ viewed as a single event. And the reason I think that is because it talks about uh, people coming out of the graves. And let's just read, start at verse 51 with me. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Um, The reason I'm inclined to think that this is not a bunch of stuff that actually happened right at the moment of Jesus' death, I think that the temple being, the the veil of the temple being torn probably did happen right at that moment. um, But the earthquake is seems like a really significant detail for the other gospel writers to overlook, and nobody else mentions it except Matthew. Um, in, in conjunction with the earthquake, it seems to be that the earthquake disturbed the graves and people come out of the graves, and they're seen in the city. Well, keeping in mind that Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep, that Jesus is Jesus' resurrection is leading the way, so to speak. Now, we have other, a few isolated occurrences of resurrections in Scripture. Not a hill I die on, but it seems to me that what makes sense is that it's not mentioned, the earthquake's not mentioned by the other gospel writers because they're restricting themselves to the events of the moment. Um, when, G- when Jesus rises, the earthquakes, graves are opened, Stones rolled away. Maybe that's part of the same picture. Jesus comes out of the dead. I'll let Ty, he can get into some of that. Like I said, not a hill I die on, but it seems to me that the most natural reading of this is that the writer, Matthew, pauses for a second. And let me just give you sort of an outline of what happened in this whole, whole bigger picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the thing that's most convincing to me is the the rising of people from the graves and being seen in the city. That's kind of a hard thing to overlook unless that's not what you're reporting on. Um, and I'm, I'm inclined to think that that was part of the bigger picture and this isn't strictly chronological right there. Comments, questions, criticisms, you know, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's my understanding of it. So, yeah, thank you. Oh my goodness! I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. I, <laughs> well, and how and how little remarked upon it is elsewhere. It's like, oh well, this little thing about you know dead people walking around the city happened. <laughs> I don't get it. You know, I don't, I don't. I don't have an answer. But this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It happened. Um, it's rather amazing, but it's also remarkable that only Matthew mentions it. Um, interesting. But certainly, 
certainly, certainly, the power of Christ's atoning sacrifice over death is demonstrated wherever you put the chronology. And that, I think, is the larger point. Um, and like I said, the chronology is not a hill I die on, but I just think it seems to be um, uh, a, a pretty natural reading of the text. Um, it says here, verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. So did he say this right at the foot of the cross? Well, the other scripture writers seem to indicate that now we're back on the chronology of exactly what happened then. You know, this, the, and, and we know of the darkness that covered the earth as Jesus died, which Matthew doesn't mention, and the centurion's going, this is incredible. This is a righteous man, is what he said, how it's reported in, was that Mark, I believe? This is the Son of God. Um, we, don't know, we don't know much about this particular centurion. It's just a, a profession that is, that is marked, but we, we've actually talked in this class before, for those who have been coming through other books for years. There's a, there's a, centurions are a thing in scripture. And I won't divert into a separate study on faithful centurions, but in the in the New Testament presentation of the gospels um, in the book of Acts, these men who are leading companies of Roman soldiers, it's a thing. It just you know, righteous or faithful centurions honoring the Lord. It, it it's not like you know it happens 50 times, but it happens repeatedly. And we also know that there's a, um, historically, a pretty strong taking hold of the Christian faith among Roman soldiers. I'm not saying anything like the majority, but there's you know, a lot of historical accounts of Roman soldiers embracing uh, the Christian faith as, as the history unfolds over the next however many years you want to talk about. So it's just, I think it's just noteworthy. The centurion... Mentioned here, um, these leaders of men, they're, and I, I think it's indicative of a lot of what starts happening in the unfolding of the, of the evangelization of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You find people with influence embracing the faith, and then it gets carried uh, to the people who listen to them and to other people in other places and it's it's like i said maybe a separate study but i, th- I think it's worth noting the centurion um, and then it, in verse 55 many women who followed jesus from galilee ministering him ministering to him were there looking on among whom were mary magdalene mary the mother of james and joseph the mother of zebedee's and the mother of zebedee's sons And now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So it just says he became a disciple of Jesus. Um, In John, it says specifically that he had become a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, secretly. He was, you know, the secret disciple. 
Uh, in Luke, it says specifically that Nicodemus was this man who was waiting for the kingdom of God, which is, you know, a euphemism for someone who was righteously, faithfully, you know, waiting for God's kingdom to unfold. And in Mark, it, it names him, uh, depending on your translation, as a prominent, not, he's a council member, not just, a, a, one, not just one of the guys, a prominent council member, has some leadership influence. I don't, we don't know anything about the or I don't know anything about the exact structure of the council, but he was a prominent council member, secretly impressed by and following Jesus for fear of what it, like Pilate perhaps, what it might do to, oh, I got responsibilities, I'm a leader of the council, the council's all voted, we want this guy dead. Well, Nicodemus, um, you might, I'm sorry, yeah, we didn't get to him yet, Joseph, you might say, um, comes out of the closet here at Jesus' death, and he goes to Pilate. He says, I'm going to honor this man. He's dead. It's over. But I want his body, and I want to give him an, a, an honorable burial. burial. Uh, we also know um, from the book of John that Nicodemus, uh, I don't know if they meet each other on the way or if they do this in concert with one another. It's not specific, but Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea go to Pilate and beg for the body of Jesus, and, and that's granted to him. So it's um, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, on one hand, you think, well, he wasn't openly a disciple, but on the other hand, it, it, this is maybe the most dangerous moment to mark yourself as one of this guy's followers. We, he just got executed as a as a disturber of the peace and as a and as a as a threat to the order of things by by to, by both the Jews and the Romans, and now Joseph marks himself as one who wants to honor this Jesus. Now we don't know about the resurrection. He didn't know about the resurrection yet. We do. I was going to say we don't in the order of the text. We and yet. Joseph is, is declaring himself, so to speak. So, interesting. Um, he, uh, verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in a new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb And then on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead! So the last deception will be worse than the first. They see the Jews' interest here is we don't want this thing getting out of hand and any wild rumors spreading. Put a guard on the tomb. Don't let there be a hint of this guy being rumored to come back from the dead. Make sure that doesn't happen. Um, Pilate, you know, accedes to their request. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone 
and setting the guard. And I don't know much about methods of stone sealing, but this was, you know, the stone cannot be easily moved. Um, Now, pause for a second. Think of this whole picture of the Jews who are hostile to Jesus and want him dead and accomplish their end. Um, there's an inconsistency that they, that they are testifying against themselves as far as their own integrity. He's, they, they, come to, they come to Pilate and they said, we remember how while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. How was that inconsistent with earlier testimony? You know, what, what was the, like the final straw of the testimony that got Jesus crucified, Beck? Yeah, this guy said he's going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And the Jews are purporting to misunderstand what Jesus meant, as many people misunderstood what he meant when he said that. Ah, he's, going, he's a threat to the temple. He's going to try to tear down the temple. and He's a madman. He thinks he can rebuild the temple in three days. Well, we know that Jesus was talking about his own resurrection. We find out right here, at least some of the Jews absolutely did understand that, but they were willing to, admit, to deliberately twist his words and misunderstand what Jesus was saying so that they might kill him. Um, so it's... It's kind of interesting, you know, if you compare, they're, they're sort of testifying right here by going to Pilate with that rumor. Uh, they're kind of indicting their own lack of integrity in the whole process. I find it interesting. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we talked, uh, actually, I, I wish I'd written this down. Maybe you can help me uh, which of the gospel accounts it is, but it just brings to mind how quickly people change loyalties when they see it to be in their own best interest to do so. What's one of, you know, we, we read about the Jews um, saying, let his blood be on us. What el- What other very, and I choose the word, Carefully, I'm not using it um, prof- profanely. What other damning phrase do the Jews use in this in this trial of Jesus? And I don't remember which of the other accounts it's in. Uh, I, th- I think I think that might be um you might you might be thinking of Acts about about Paul. Yeah, I, th- I think that 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 is one that that is one. As Pilate's before him, there's something else, a very horrible thing to think when you know the big picture. We have no king but Caesar. Really? I mean, even if you do want Jesus dead, are you going to call yourself a Jew and stand there and cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Sorry about that, Mike. But that's—I mean—that's awful. That—that that is, and, and, and you reminded me of it by you know, changing loyalties. 
Ah, sure, if, it's, if it'll help get Jesus killed, I will claim to be a loyal subject of, of Caesar if it'll help get him dead. Yeah. And, and, and then in history, what do, what are many Christians executed for as history unfolds? Not bowing the knee to Caesar. Which is an interesting commentary, by the way, on persecution. I have contended that it is almost unheard of from the persecutor's point of view to persecute people because they're Christians. From the Christian's point of view, we understand that we're getting persecuted because we're Christians. But from the Romans' point of view, to use them as an example, they don't care whether you're a Christian or not. They weren't going to throw you to the lions for being a Christian. What they're going to throw you to the lions for is not bowing to Caesar. As long as you bow to Caesar, you can go ahead and be a Christian if you want. We don't care. Just bow to Caesar. And you know, I think that has a lot of parallels in our own day. People who are hostile and um, trying to tear down the Christian faith now, they don't care if we personally want to have our little you know, clubs of Christians called churches and have our little Sunday morning worship service as long as we don't rock the boat of their priorities and what the culture is pursuing. What we're going to get persecuted for is, in the bigger picture, it will be for being Christians, but from the point of view of the adversary, we'll get persecuted for refusing to go along with the cultural agenda. That's what we're going to get persecuted for. So I think it's helpful to understand the times to, to think in those terms. Okay, a lot more can be said about notes on the chronology. We have about 15 minutes. I want to kind of sum up with a big picture summary, but comments, questions, observations first, just on the events as they unfold. Becky. Yeah, yeah. Like caution tape around a crime scene, something, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't answer. It It would seem, even if it wasn't like a sign, the soldiers were there, posted with Pilate's authority, you would think that's at least the idea is represented there. Um, I've always, I don't, you know, I haven't really been able to, come up with anything myself on what, what is meant by sealing the tomb. I've, I've always kind of thought, you know, some sort of a mortar you know, or, or wedging of rocks in place, make sure that thing can't move. Um, I'm not, I, I can't comment further. Any other observations, that Rebecca? I think that's right, and I think that's really worth considering. 
um, who really holds the power here, and tied in with that question, what does power look like? You see what's going on with the centurion? He's saying, oh, he died. Wow, what a powerful guy. Uh, well, in one way, that makes no sense at all. But if you understand that he is displaying the power of life and death, you can, you can nail him to a cross, you can murder him, but you can't really murder someone who they are holding all the cards in the game of life and death. Um, that's, not, that, that's, a, that's a murder attempt, and they are culpable, but it's, you know, Jesus is the one that had the power. And, and in death, he sees that. And that kind of leads into um, what I want to contend is the key verse of the passage, just to kind of sum up the whole account. Turn back. Um, uh, let's start at verse 39. Um, 38, the two robbers crucified with him, one on the right, another on the left. And then we have this account of people mocking Jesus as he is being crucified. And just read the text. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads. Eh, what, a, what a sorry, what a pathetic case he is. Um, and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And I think it's pretty clear from the context, they're not actually saying, oh, Jesus, please come down, show us your power. They're mocking. You think you're so great, come on down. And likewise, the chief priests, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come now, come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. Again, I don't really think that the, uh, the chief priests and scribes and elders were saying, okay, one last chance. We're willing to believe in you, Jesus. Just show us something great here. That's not what they're saying. It's mocking. It's mocking. And then here is what I think is the key the key verse in, in, the, in the account of Jesus's, I mean, the key. Again, you know, I won't fight you over whether you think a, a different verse is the key, but this is really important in the text. He trusted in God. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the reason I think that is so key is because it's like a, a keystone fitting into the broader arc of Scripture because from beginning to end, you know, what the whole history of, of creation, the fall, the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the history of Israel, the, the prophecies about the coming Messiah, the life of Jesus himself, who comes to him, who doesn't come to him uh, in in subjection, it's all about trust. And what's going on here? They're mocking him because his trust in God has led him to die. And the truth of the matter is they are, their, their, their perspective is completely sinfully warped. But they are nailing the, he, the nail on the head in one sense, 
he is, in fact, trusting God. He is trusting God unto death. And yet, you know, and this and, and this has been the story of the the story of what we've been heading for ever since Adam and Eve. Think, just think with me for a minute about Adam and Eve. And you know, we talk a lot about Eve's transgression, the eating of the forbidden fruit, serpent, you know, the serpent playing fast and loose with God's words, um, Eve giving in to her own temptation and transgressing, but. What's underneath the transgression of Adam and Eve? Well, here's the bigger picture. God told them what they should not do. And by telling them, he clearly implied to them what they should do. And it's before the question of eating the forbidden fruit. It's before the acting out of what's going on in the heart. And remember, this is unfallen, Adam and Eve. God said, and by saying, he was telling them, trust me. You know, if someone gives you a command, and the command makes good sense to you, so you follow the command. Is that trust? Maybe, maybe not. But if someone gives you a command that doesn't make a lick of sense to you and you obey that command, what you're probably doing is displaying faith in the one giving the command. Well, I don't know why you're asking me, but I trust you. And I think right from the beginning that this is the story of what God is doing in the world. Trust me. Adam and Eve, okay, yes, and it plays out in specific actions. The sin is the partaking of the forbidden fruit. But if it, here, here's what didn't happen. Eve did not stand there in the garden, listen to the serpent, and say in her heart, but I trust God. I think I'll lead anyway. That's, that's crazy. That's lunacy. The root of her disobedience was that God said and she failed to trust God's goodness and wisdom. He's holding out on me. Look at the tree. It's beautiful. It's good for food. It's going to make me wise. What's wrong with God? God's, why would God not want me to have that? Just trust him. Just trust him. And so here's... And, 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 you know, here's, here's the story. It's unfolded through Israel's history. Here's the Messiah has arrived. And Jesus does what Eve should have done. Trust God, whether it seems to make any earthly sense or not. Trust God wherever it leads you. Failing to trust God led Eve and Adam to death. And now Jesus, by trusting God is led, takes himself in faith to death, to death. The death that Adam and Eve earned, the death that all of us are partakers of, by trusting God. And then this is the, this is the call to us. You know, we, 
it, it's not earn God's favor by sacrificing yourself. It's trust God. And in one way or another, in a fallen world, trusting God will always take you through death of, of, of a literal or figurative kind. There will always be some, some way in which obedience to God costs dearly. But we trust that um, the rich, the the glory of this pre- the, the glories of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Just trust Him. It may get you killed. It may get you hated. It may not bring you any worldly honor. Just trust Him. And Jesus is dying as the atonement for Adam and Eve's sin, for all of our sin. But he's also dying as the perfect image of his father behaving in trust and love when he was reviled, and I'm quoting from 1 Peter 2 again, when he was, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges justly. This is what the... The council is mocking him for, and it's exactly what he's doing. He is committing himself to him who judges justly, and it's deadly. Christians, follow me. I'm not saying try to get yourself killed. I'm saying trust wherever it leads. And because it's a sinful world, because sin is the enemy and oppressor of all righteousness. And we're heading for the, for the glory of fellowship with our Father through Jesus. And the road to glory in a million ways, big and small, leads through suffering and death. It may be literal death. It may be death of desires. It may be death of ambitions. Um, there's a, you know, we are called... To be like Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, parenthetically I'll say, is not my own, but Jesus's. The life that I let now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If I trust Jesus, my life's over, in a sense. Now, Paul went on living. Paul had a very fruitful life earthly material life but in a real sense you know he trusted Jesus and his life was over he just went wherever it took him you know he trusted in God let him deliver him they're mocking him for the very heart if if the if the cross if the death burial and resurrection is the heart of the gospel Christ's steadfast Faith in his in the goodness of his father is the heart of the death, burial, and resurrection. And I think that, that's that's why I, I come back to that verse. I just I just have to comment on it. And then, you know, broaden that. What does the kingdom of God look like? Remember, you know, we're 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 reading Matthew. I don't have it on the board here, but the theme in Matthew, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Oh, the king is not the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and peace. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Oh, what do, you know, the kingdom doesn't look like 
we would often want it to look like. You know, wouldn't it be great if the kingdom of God not only, you know, brought you to eternal joy in God's presence, but gave you, you know, mansions and constant gratification of your desires all along the way? Gosh, wouldn't, don't, at one sinful level, don't we all want the kingdom of God to look like that? It's not reality. Trust God wherever it leads you, and it will lead you to a cross. We're just about out of time. Uh, that, that's, where I, that's where I want to finish. Comments? Uh, no questions? Because, well, you can, you can ask me a quick question. We have a, maybe a minute. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's the, I think that's the summary. That's, that's how it all ties up. Ty will go on to chapter 28 next week where we, where we see the, the playing out of the, of the glory of the result of trusting God. Comments? All right, then. Thank you all, and let's worship him together.